Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. So we turn the corner now uh, from the, the Battling Fear series, which I have to say, I, it's been a long time since I have done a series um, that, that garnered so much feedback to me personally. I mean, we would talk to people and, and uh, they would say, man, that thing got said and it just really helped me. It helped me to know and and um, help me to understand some things. So I, I'm so appreciative that anything we do here is helpful to somebody. Um, and so now we turn our attention, kind of looking to the spring, kind of looking to Easter. And uh, just let me say about Easter, there are people that you know, there are people in your world who want to go to church on Easter Sunday. They do. You may think they don't. You may think they, they don't even think about God, but they would really love to go to church on an Easter Sunday. They just need somebody to ask them. So would you be the one that asks them? Pray about it. See, you know, God set it up. Give me the right time and the right moment to pop the question and ask somebody to come to church with me. And then bring them to church. We, we will do everything we can that day to make it a great day, a day where they leave and they've learned something, but they feel good. And, and um, I, I just can't imagine they wouldn't be glad that they came to church with you on Easter Sunday. Um, be making your arrangements now. Be making plans. And, and uh, we're, we're just going to have a great day on Easter. Three services, so... Plenty of room for everybody. We've got spring break out of the way, so um, we should have a really full house, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a fun time. To get us there, I want to do a couple of sermons with a series entitled Rebellion, and uh, we're going to look at a couple of characters in the next couple of weeks to, to, to kind of draw out some things that might be going on with us in our hearts and in our lives as well. One of the funny things about us as people is that most of us, probably all of us at one time or another, have resisted God. We've, we've rebelled in, in one way or another. We've said no. At some stage in our life, some of us maybe are doing it right now, we have had the audacity to look at God and say no. What were we thinking? You know, I mean, how crazy are we? And then you think about it like that, it just seems kind of ridiculous, but in the moment, it, it kind of feels like the thing to do. And there are several reasons why we resist God. One of them is we don't want to give up control of our lives, at least that's what we think. We think we control our lives, and we don't want to give that up. Another reason might be that we don't want to give up a portion of our life. God, you can have 90%, but you can't have this 10%. You can't have this relationship. You, God, you can't have this weekend. You can't have this, um, this season. You, can, you, you, can't, you can't have this activity. Uh, we, we want to control a, a particular thing, you know, habit, money, relationship, whatever. There's a sense that if we don't resist God, he's going to mess with us in some way and that we can somehow keep him from doing that. And then some of us resist God because we're mad at him. He didn't do what we thought he should do. He didn't act the way we thought he should act. And he should have done A and he didn't. And he should have healed her and he didn't. And he could have changed this, but he didn't. And we don't know if he caused the pain in our life or just allowed it, but we don't really care we're not real crazy about the fact, because if he's God, he could have done something about it, and he didn't. So you're mad at him, and you resist God. For the next two weeks, I want to look at two characters as they played their part in the story of Jesus. They said no to God, and their rebellion really comes front and center as we come up on, on Easter time. And as we read these two stories, as outsiders, we're going to be tempted to say, how foolish could you be? And, and what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is that there's a little bit of these two guys in all of us, and as ridiculous as it seems to us, they, they, they would rebel against God in their circumstances 
hopefully we can take something away from their rebellion and their response to, to Jesus to make a difference for us in our life uh, and keep us maybe from doing our own rebellion. Unlike us, these two guys were in the presence of Christ. One man actually touched Jesus. Unlike us, where God is out there kind of in the spiritual world somewhere, we can't see him or touch him. You know, we talk about a relationship with Jesus, but it's not one where you can uh, audibly hear his voice. Um, if you do, stay far away from me because you've got other issues. But, but you know, we, we, we don't get the, the opportunity to touch Jesus. We don't, we don't get the chance to sit by the lakeside and, and have breakfast with him like Peter did. Or we don't get a chance like some of these guys did to have a conversation one-on-one in real time, face-to-face with Jesus. And, and, and these guys did. And for these guys, they were in the very presence of God and their agendas were so strong and their greed so deep and their anger ran so rampant in their heart and in their soul, they were unable, even in the presence of God, to surrender and follow and obey. Even in the physical presence of Jesus, they rebelled. And here's the irony of all of it, is that in resisting him and saying no to him, they actually played into the plan of God that they were so desperately trying to thwart in the first place. This was the truth for them, and this is the truth for us. God is in control. His will will not be thwarted, and to resist is futile. Today's character is much like someone you know. In fact, you may be married to this person, and if you are, don't nudge them. Don't throw an elbow. You may be this person, okay? Today's character is a guy that that always landed on his feet. He's the ultimate politician. He's a master negotiator. He was a power broker, able to work his way into the right relationships at the right time to accomplish the things that he wanted to accomplish. And as a result, he ended up in a great position of power. You dare not cross him. He got his way because he demanded his way. If you got to meet him today in your context, it might be someone that you would admire very much because they were so powerful and they were so in control. He was just intimidating enough that you would respect him. He was a man who figured out how to get to the seat of power and then to do everything in his power to stay in that place regardless of what it cost him. Caiaphas was one of the most powerful Jews in Israel at this particular time during the first century. He was powerful because of his religious affiliation He was the high priest. He was powerful because he was the president of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of Jewish life. And he was powerful because he was appointed by Rome to represent the Jewish people to the Roman Empire. This guy had it going for him. He was the go-between. He was the peacemaker. So consequently, he was the ultimate negotiator. He was the one Jewish person that once a year could go into the Holy of Holies and represent the people of God, to God. It was his job. He did it once a year. No one else got to do that. He was closer to God, physically, humanly speaking, than any other man on earth from a Jewish perspective. As president of the Sanhedrin, he had considerable juice. He was a lawmaker. He was the go-to person for Rome. Consequently, he had exceeding powers. Unlike most high priests, Caiaphas was able to maintain this position for 18 years. The average uh, length of service for a high priest was somewhere between three and four years. Caiaphas made it 18 years through negotiation, through power, through reputation, and through the force 
of his will. He was in charge. And yet, during the first century, in the first 15 years of his reign as high priest, he had met his match in a Jewish carpenter from a town called Nazareth. When Jesus came on the scene, he had immediately garnered a following. And as one who claimed to be the Messiah over and over, when Jesus healed people, he would send them to the Pharisees. He did it over and over. He would heal somebody and he would say, go show yourself to the Pharisees. And Caiaphas would get another knock on the door and there would be another healed person that Jesus had sent over. The next day, another knock on the door and this is my son and Jesus, you know, he's been blind from birth and Jesus healed him and he sent us to you, Caiaphas. Why did he send us to you? I don't know. Next day, another knock on the door. This is my son. He's been lame from birth and Jesus touched him and healed him and he sent us to you, Caiaphas. And day after day, Caiaphas and his associates would be reminded that there was a man on the loose out there preaching this incredibly different message about God and he was performing miracles and he continued to send the people that he had healed to the Pharisees because the job of the Pharisees was to represent the people, represent to the people who the Messiah was. The reason that Jesus continually sent the sick and the people he healed to the Pharisees was because it was the job of the Pharisees to go out and discover who the Messiah was and then to tell the people, this is the Messiah. And Jesus is like saying, hello, here I am. You're healed. Go show yourself to the high priest. You're healed. Go show yourself to the Pharisees. Over and over, this happened time and time again. But as the days went by and as Jesus' followers continued to grow in number and as Jesus began to gain influence with the people, Caiaphas and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin slowly began to feel their power and their influence slip away. It began to ebb away. And as time went by, their motives became more apparent. Early on in their interactions with Jesus, they would say, you know, you're teaching heresy. You're not representing God accurately. And what is this thing about your mom not ever being married? And where did you come from? And what's that all about? They'd done everything they could to quietly slow this this growing revolution. And yet, they had failed time after time after time. Finally, Jesus did a miracle, and it was the last straw. He did a miracle that no one could ignore. And it forced Caiaphas and his group to expose to the world what their real concern and what their real intent was all along. And see, their problem wasn't the theology of Jesus, although that's what they said. Their problem wasn't the ancestry of Jesus, although that's what they said. The problem that they had with Jesus had to do with the fact that he was starting to challenge what they controlled and what they valued the most their power, their place, their position. And so they did what any of us would do when we have worked so hard to accomplish something and it begins to slip through our fingers. They resorted to the only method they knew of maintaining control, and that was to leverage their influence, their power, their position, not for God's sake, not for the kingdom's sake, not for the people's sake, but for their sake. They leveraged control for their sake. Caiaphas would leverage control for his own sake. I would like for you to turn to John 11 if you have your Bibles with you. 
We will begin with verse 45 as we look into the heart and mind of Caiaphas. John eleven forty-five. Let me tell you what's happened just before this incident we're going to read about. Jesus has done the ultimate miracle. He has brought a man back from the dead. John 11 is the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Up until this point, it's just been a lot of sick people and, you know, a lot of sermons. And suddenly Jesus walks over the line and he does something that they never imagined that he would do or would be able to do. He stood outside the tomb of a very famous man in the community, a man named Lazarus. People knew Lazarus. Lazarus was a rich and wealthy man. He was a businessman in the community. He was well-liked. And Jesus, publicly in front of all the mourners, after Lazarus has been dead for four days, you say, well, why did Jesus wait? You know, there's a section in the Bible where Jesus waits after he learns that, that Lazarus has been dead. He wants to make sure everyone understands Lazarus is gone. He's dead. He's not coming back. He needed the weight of that death to sink in to the hearts of people because he knew what he was going to do. And he wanted there to be no doubt when he did it that he had done something extraordinary. And so Jesus called a dead man out of the tomb and Lazarus came out. And when, and when that happened, most of the skeptics said, okay, <laughs> we believe. We know the Pharisees say he's a false prophet. We know that the Pharisees say he's not teaching the right doctrine. We get all that. We know that the Pharisees have cast all kinds of aspersions on this dude's ancestry. We get all that. When a guy can call a dead man back to life, we're with him. And I've said many times in here, I'm with those guys. I'm with the skeptics. When, when you show me somebody that raised people from the dead and raised himself from the dead, I don't really care what he says. I don't care what he teaches. I don't care if I understand it all. I don't even really care if he contradicts himself. Okay? I'm with him. I'm going where he goes. I'm going to follow that guy because that guy can do things I've never seen anybody else do. And, and so there it was. And the word spread like wildfire. Lazarus has been brought back to life by Jesus the prophet, the carpenter. Could he be the Messiah? Could he? John 11, verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, Mary is the sister of Lazarus, and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. All these people that have been skeptical up to this point, they see Lazarus come out, and it's like, okay, game over, we're, we're in. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. <laughs> you are not going to like what we're about to tell you. Jesus is at it again. He done went and raised somebody from the dead. We're not talking about giving sight to the blind or, you know, helping somebody walk again. He raised this dude from the dead. So they did what all religious people do in a crisis. They had a meeting. Verse 47. When the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, they said, okay, we got to get this together. This, you know, this is kind of getting out of our control. We can't let this go like this. We got to do something. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Look what they said. What are we accomplishing, they asked. In other words, this is not going the way we think it should go. We have leveraged all our power. We have leveraged all of our influence. We've done everything we can to shut this guy down. We cannot shut him down. We tried the coin trick, you know, whose coin does this belong to? Whose, 
who does this coin belong to? That didn't work. We tried the whole thing about this woman that was married to seven different guys in this life. When she gets to heaven, who's she going to be married to? And we thought we had him on that one, and he got away with that one. And then we asked him, you know, who do we pay taxes to? That didn't work. We've done everything we can to embarrass him. We've done all we can to separate the people from him and to drive people away from him and turn people against him. That hasn't worked. We're not getting anywhere with this guy. What are we accomplishing? Now see, we hear all that and we think, okay, time out. Why wouldn't you just go with it? Why wouldn't you just, I mean, this guy's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. What is there to have a meeting about? Just throw in with him and be done with it. I mean, it's as simple as that. And yet there was something in them, and I would argue there's something in me and there's something in you that when their world was being rocked and when their little private kingdom was being tampered with and when it all started to slip away, When their environment and their circumstances that they had worked so hard to get just right and to get all the control and all the juice, suddenly instead of just going with it, they find themselves in damage control mode. Have you ever been there? Damage control. I've got too much invested. I've worked too hard. And I'm going to take matters into my own hands. You ever been there? As we will see, they find themselves contemplating things they never imagined that they would contemplate in order to control outcomes. Suddenly they they expose what they are most afraid of. Listen to what they say in verse 47. What are we accomplishing, they ask. Here is, is this man performing many signs, to which you want to go, hello, there you go. He's performing many signs, why don't you just throw in with him? Quit fighting him and just go with it. And then check this out. This might be one of the most arrogant statements in the entire New Testament, okay? If you've got a pen, underline this next sentence we're going to read. If we let him go on like this, <laughs> if we, the Sanhedrin, allow Jesus, allow Jesus to go on like this as if somehow Jesus was only free to do what he was doing because they had given him permission. Excuse me? And here's a group of people who because of their thinking and their time and their success and their influence and their wealth and all of their power had come to believe that they actually controlled outcomes. They had come to believe that they were in control of something and and that the only reason Jesus was able to do what he was able to do is because they had not yet stopped him. But by their estimation, it was certainly within their scope and certainly within their control to shut him down. Once they figured out a proper way to do it, their arrogance is unbelievable. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Right. That's the goal, isn't it? Not when everyone believing in Jesus messes with your private kingdom. That's not the goal. See, here's what, what, where this intersects with our life. At some point in your life, and it may have already happened, it's possible that it's happened more than once, but certainly it happens at least one big time in every life, 
following Jesus or continuing to follow Jesus will cost you something. It'll cost you something. Something will come along, it'll rock your world. It might be God, might be circumstances, might be life, who knows. But somewhere something's going to rock your world. And in that moment, you will have to decide, am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to go into damage control mode and, and, or am I going to abandon everything I've believed about God to this point? Am I going to abandon my morality and my ethics and my values in order to try and maintain control? To fix and maintain what I've worked so hard to develop and set up just right in my world? Am I going to abandon everything so I can protect my little kingdom? Somewhere along the way, it begins to slip away from you. It might be your health, your marriage, your business, future, your income, your college major, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It begins to slip away, and suddenly you are left with a dilemma. Do I continue to follow, even though it seems as if following means I'm going to lose more, or do I go into damage control? And do I do everything in my power to maintain whatever it is that I've spent so much time trying to build up in my life for myself? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then, and here is what they feared the most. Not the, not theology, not doctrine, not ancestry. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and all the perks that went with it, and all the perks that came from the Romans. The Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. In other words, we have got to stop Jesus, because if he continues to do what he's doing, we have a lot to lose. And the only way to save and maintain what we've spent years working for and developing in terms of relationship with the Romans and our wealth and our income and all this leverage we've got, the only way to protect that is to shut Jesus down. We have got to shut him down. Because if Jesus continues to do what he does, we're going to lose out. There's a lot for us to lose if Jesus is successful. Verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas who was high priest that year, spoke up. And I want you to just listen for the condescending nature of what he says next. You know nothing at all. I mean, this guy's really powerful. He's listened to everybody talking about what to do next, what are we going to do, and string our hands, and what are we going to do. And, and he steps up and he says, you know nothing at all. You guys don't know what you're talking about. You guys are running around here. You're so worried about Jesus. You're so ignorant. Have you not been paying attention? Do you not understand the power that we hold? And we have all the leverage. We have all the control. Have you forgotten who we are? We're the Sanhedrin. I'm the high priest. I have all kinds of leverage. I got all kinds of juice. We, we can maintain all of this stuff that we've set up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you. You might want to circle that. That's the true intent here. Not the nation. We're not worried about the nation. We're not worried about these lowly people. We're worried about what's in it for us. 
you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And I think a hush might have fallen over the Sanhedrin at that point. And I think it's possible that they started to look at one another and then they looked back at, G, at, at, at Caiaphas and they said, die? Whoa, 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 Caiaphas. I mean, you know, we like our place and we like our long robes and we like our perks and our big houses and we like the fact that the Romans don't charge us taxes. We love all that. Die? You would go so far as to have an innocent man killed in order to protect what you've spent a lifetime building? To which I think Caiaphas just kind of sat back and looked very smugly and said, of course I would. What other choice do we have? Do you want to lose all the stuff you've spent your whole life working on because of some carpenter from Nazareth? Of course that's what I'm talking about. And apparently, after Caiaphas spoke, they all looked around at each other and shook their heads like, well, yeah, we're with you. Like, no, I don't want to let some carpenter ruin everything that we've worked so hard to, to get. So, yeah, I guess we're with you. So skip to verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And eventually they have him arrested on trumped-up charges and convicted Pilate. Uh, they, they convinced Pilate to crucify him so that they wouldn't lose their status, they wouldn't lose their place or their kingdom. And we read that story and we go, whoa, that's some bad dudes right there. I mean, that's some evil guys. Here's the principle that finds my life, and I imagine it finds yours too. Here's the principle. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. This is true for all of us. When you begin to believe, and, and we all are there at some point in our life when you begin to believe that all you have and all you control and all you rule over your family your income your business your inheritance your wealth whatever it might be when you begin to believe and operate with the premise that all i have is the consequence of my hard work my effort my talent and the opportunities that i have leveraged then with that assumption comes the pressure to maintain it through the same means through which you got it. Let me say it another way. If, if, if everything you have is the result of your hard work, then on, the only way you can maintain all that stuff is with your hard work. And if who you are and what you own and control is the result of your talent and your effort, then when it comes to maintaining it, when it's threatened, you have to depend on your talent and your effort. See, if your attitude is, I am who I am because of me, I, I would recommend to you, I said this to somebody the other day and they laughed, we were talking about something and I, I was just, they paid me a compliment and I, they gave me more credit than I deserved and I just looked at them, I learned this from Chuck Swindoll, apparently it's an old saying, I, I just looked at him and said, I'm a turtle on a fence post, that's what I am. I mean, here's what you know about a turtle on a fence post, you see a turtle on a fence post, somebody put him there. Right? He didn't get there by himself. Think about it. But, but you know, there, there are times in our life where we come to where we go, well, I'm, I'm not a turtle on a fence post. I am who I am because of me. I earned this. 
I got that. I worked hard for this. See, when you get to that place, then you live every day of your life with the pressure to maintain that. And if you live that way for too long, eventually when things begin to erode, and in life, trust me, second law of thermodynamics, entropy, it's going to spin down. It's going to ebb away. It's going to begin to eventually crumble. That's what life does. You, you pour resources, you pour resources into things, you fuel it, fuel it, fuel it, trying to keep it spinning. Eventually, it starts to spin down. Wealth, health. You know, the good vibe. I mean, go enjoy the beach. I'm glad you got to see it. Eventually, you got to come back to Terre Haute, right? Eventually, you got to come home. I see y'all with your suntans, and I see it. I don't think I don't see it. Bunch of heathens. <laughs> I'm playing. I'm playing. When you hit a bump and suddenly everything is insecure and everything starts to kind of ebb away and everything begins to crumble, your knee-jerk reaction is going to be to do whatever you can do to make sure that it doesn't get away from you and get out from under you. And that desire and that drive has the potential to drive you to unhealthy, unspiritual extremes. Because if you are where you are because of your hard work and your ingenuity, you have no choice but to trust in those very same things to maintain it. And you're not going to have all that forever. It is why you and I have watched men and women who have spent years and years building a company and a reputation and financial wealth and suddenly it begins to unravel. And they go to extremes to protect it to the neglect of the people they love. And you watch men and women ignore their husbands and ignore their wives and ignore their kids in order to maintain and protect, and you think to yourself, that is a terrible trade-off. Do you not see what you're doing? You're trading all this for your family and for time with your family. You're, you're trading it all. But what choice do they have? Because that's what you do when you come to a place where you think, I got all this myself. And if I'm going to keep it, I've got to keep doing this. If somewhere along the way you begin to believe that you achieved it on your own, if somewhere along the way you begin to believe, like the Pharisees believed, that you control outcomes, then you have no choice than to resort to your own ingenuity to protect your investment. It's why you've heard men and women in different words, and this might be your story, talk about the deal. You know, we all, at some point in our life, we all have the deal. You know, if I can just make this deal work, it's going to be golden. Honey, this, this deal is going to be golden. This is the deal. And you work and you work and you spend months, maybe years, pulling this thing together, and it's coming together and it's going to be beautiful. And look at it, it's right there. And then the deal falls apart. And you watch men and women sacrifice their integrity and their reputation and their morality to save the deal. Because if you think the deal is your deal, you have no choice but to protect it yourself. And if you think that way for too long, you will go to all kinds of unhealthy extremes in order to maintain what you think you have built and developed. You find this in relationships all the time. You're, you're in college you're a high school student. You finally got the guy, right? You got him. You worked hard, and, 
and you got his attention, and he asked you out. Now you're in this relationship, and it's so important. And, you know, maybe you feel like you got the girl. And this is the relationship you've worked so hard to manufacture, and suddenly things aren't as secure, and you're afraid of losing her or losing him. And in your fear, you clamp down. In your fear, you begin to do all kinds of things in order to protect and keep and control a relationship. I can't let her go. I can't let him go. I know I shouldn't be involved in that, but if this is what it takes to keep the relationship together, then that's what I'm going to do. And you know you have no business doing that, and you know it's way outside what God wants for you. I know, I know, but I've got to do this in order to keep and maintain control. And you know what happens at the end of the day when we think and we go in that direction? We end up at odds with God when we need him the most. We end up wrestling with God, a wrestling match that no one has ever won. And here's the irony. At the end of this story, you will actually substantiate the truth that you fought so hard against. At the end of the story or at the end of the deal or the relationship or the business or whatever, you will have underscored what God was trying to tell you all along. And it is this. You don't control outcomes. I don't control outcomes. We don't control anything. God is in control, and when you keep your hands open and you confess, okay, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. God, it's yours. You give it and you take it away. When you keep your hands wide open and you say, thy will be done. God, this is scaring me to death, but I will not abandon the principles of God in order, to, in order to maintain the blessings of God. I won't do that. I believe God gave him or her to me. I believe God gave me this business. God, I believe that these opportunities came from you. And when I begin to sense that they're slipping away, I am not going to abandon the principles of God to somehow try to hold on to the blessing of God. I will be that unique person that says, God gives and God takes away. And at the end of the day, I will not find myself at odds with God, even if the Romans... Come and take it away from me. I have watched some of you in this room walk through some hard things. And I've watched you walk through some stuff where things were kind of slipping away. And I've heard you kind of say in one form or another, I'm not going to abandon the principles of God in the midst of a a crisis. And I'm not going to abandon my ethics. And I'm not going to abandon my morality. You know, if she goes, she goes. If he goes, he goes. If I lose it, I lose it. If the deal goes away, God has other deals. But I'm not going to resort to fill in the blank in order to maintain. I, I have been through some stuff in my life, as we all have. We, you know, nobody gets out unscathed, right? It's like trying to walk to a hog barn and not get any stink on you. It's impossible. You can't do it. You're going to get a little messed up along the way. I've gone through my stuff, and there have been some occasions where I might have been tempted to step in and control the outcome. There have been some times when some things were being said, times when people thought they knew and they didn't know. And it would have been really easy to to be seduced into standing up and speaking up and taking action and trying to control outcomes and trying to control what people think and control everything. And I alluded to this last week, but I hesitate to say God showed me this verse because I hate language like that, but 
I'm going to say it. God showed me this verse. <laughs> Exodus 14. This hangs on the wall in my home office. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Here's what I take away from that. My responsibility is to be obedient, as obedient to God as I can be, and to trust him with the outcome. And I find that when that is my focus, I am much more calm and I'm much more able to deal with the circumstances around me. Now, imagine if you could take that perspective into every arena of your life. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Next time you do a deal, you do a deal to the best of your ability and you be as honest as you can be. And if the deal happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. But I'm going to wake up in the morning. I'm not going to wake up at odds with God. I've done everything I can to be a great husband or a great wife. I've done everything I can. I've been to counseling. I've served. But I'm not going to go to unhealthy extremes. And I'm not going to do something crazy to save something that only God can save. I love this girl. She's wonderful. But I'm not going to sacrifice my morality to keep her. Because my goal is to wake up every morning at peace with God and be able to say, my responsibility is to God. I do not control outcomes. I'm not responsible for outcomes. God is responsible for outcomes. Here's the irony of this whole story. As hard as he fought and as much as he hated Jesus, I mean, he trumped up charges. He has Jesus crucified. He broke all of his own laws. He sacrificed his own morality to get rid of this guy and to make sure that he protected himself from the things that, that the Romans might be able to take from him. And, and you know what happened at the end of this story? <laughs> a few years later, after Jesus is crucified, guess what the Romans did? They came in, and they took his place, and they took his nation, and there wasn't a thing Caiaphas could do about it. Not a thing. They didn't just take the nation, they destroyed the temple. Titus in AD 70 said, not only do I want you to destroy the temple, I want you to make it so that it's never built again and there's never been a temple since that day on that spot. And the reason we even know Caiaphas' name is, is that in his attempt to thwart the will of God, he was instrumental in accomplishing it. Within eyeshot, earshot of that temple mound, was the hill that we call Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. And once Jesus was crucified, there would be no need for temple sacrifice anymore. Basically, Caiaphas, in his attempt to control and protect, put himself out of business by sacrificing the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. His legacy is the opposite of what he tried to accomplish. God's will cannot be thwarted, and it is futile to resist. There will come a day in your life, maybe more than one, where everything that you consider valuable will feel like it's slipping away. And in that moment, you're going to have to decide, do I open my hands wide and say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? Or will I clench my fists and will I cling with everything I have and will I sacrifice and go against 
the principles of God to maintain the blessing of God. I would advise you not to do that. That will not end well. It didn't end well for Caiaphas. In the times that I've done that in my life, that has not ended well for me. And just take it for me, it won't end well for you. But I will not in futility try to control and maintain what it is that I cannot control and maintain anyway. We don't control outcomes. God is in control. And our responsibility is to simply obey and trust him with the outcome of the journey. Here's a question to leave you with as we walk out this morning. Where in your life are you sacrificing what you know is right in order to try to control outcomes? Where are you sacrificing what you know is right in order to try to control an outcome? I'm just going to leave that for you to think about and ponder this week. And how does that fit into your rebellion? Let's pray together. Father, we give you all praise and worship this morning. We come to you, we recognize whether or not we act like it and live like it, we know you're in control. We are not under any real illusion that we control anything. We know better. We are turtles on a fence post. And God, you've probably put us there. So in these moments, we just, we acknowledge that and we open our hands and we breathe this prayer, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. So this week, Father, as we go into this coming week, my prayer for for us is that we would just slip our hand into yours with a new assurance and a new resolve and a new Hope to live life in a way that we know that you're in control. And we don't cling. We don't get harsh with people. and We don't come down on people. And we don't manipulate and control and be angry and harsh. We open our hands. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.